second letter to Timothy. We're going to finish out the third chapter today, and then we, if we have time, and that's a big if, uh, we will go into the fourth and the last chapter of this epistle. And we've said that these are the last words written by the Apostle Paul. At the time that he wrote them, he was imprisoned in Rome. And so by the time we get to the fourth chapter, we are not only in the last words, we're in the last of the last words that Paul wrote while on earth. But we didn't finish up where we were a couple of weeks ago, and that is at the very end of 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, open to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, uh, through the end, and we'll read through those verses, and then we'll do a quick review, and then finish up the section where we were a week or two ago. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my presence, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And Paul has already laid out for Timothy the challenges that he is facing in terms of this ministry that he is about to take on. He's going to be Paul's heir, as it were, his spiritual heir. And as a consequence of that, he is going to face a great deal of difficulty. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Paul makes it very clear. Uh, Jesus had made this very clear, of course, to his disciples. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. He said, anyone that would seek to follow me must first take up his cross. And, of course, in the first century, the cross was a symbol of suffering and rejection and pain. So when Jesus said to his disciples, anyone that would seek to follow me must first take up his cross and follow me, that was clearly an invitation to come and die. And yet here in the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wants to give some encouragement to Timothy. If Timothy is going to take on this enormous task, and we've talked about Timothy. Timothy was very different from the Apostle Paul. They were like night and day in terms of their temperament. If Timothy was going to be able to weather the storm, he needed certain tools, certain things in his spiritual toolbox that would give him the the grace and the ability to be the kind of leader that the church would need in the days ahead. And so one of the things Paul instructs Timothy to do is to remember. Remember mainly how far God had already brought him. Remember that the God who had been faithful in the past was the God who could be trusted for the future. And so Paul mentions a number of things that Timothy was to remember. First, we said he was to remember Paul himself. All the examples that Paul gave in terms of his own life and his own Ministry. There are times when we're in the midst of ministry and we're facing difficulty that we feel as though we're all alone. We're the only one to experience this hardship. And it's helpful to remember that we're not the only ones, that there have been others who've gone before us and have actually weathered the storm as well. 
I'm not saying that Paul is suggesting that misery loves company, uh, but it can be an encouragement to know that you are not the only one who's ever faced this. You know, the author of Hebrews says something very similar. He says, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Why? Because he has been tempted in every way just as we are. Isn't that a comfort? Isn't that an encouragement? You know, it's one thing to pour yourself out and your heart out to somebody because you're going through a difficult time, but they don't have a clue as to what you're experiencing. It's another thing to pour your heart out to somebody who's been down that road, who's been through what you've been through, and can understand, not only sympathize with you, but empathize as well. Well, that's what Jesus was able to do for us because he was tempted in every way just as we are. And Paul is saying to Timothy, I know what you're going through. I, I speak from experience, so remember what happened to me. He also says, remember this, that persecutions are going to come. All desire, he said, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, this is Paul's way of saying, Timothy, when difficulty comes... It's all right to be shocked, but don't be surprised. It's all right to be shocked. We're always shocked when difficulty comes. And oftentimes when the difficulty or the persecution or the hardship or the opposition comes our way, it never comes in the way we expect it to come, do we? I mean, I've said this more than once over the course of the past several years. When I became a clergyman, I knew I would face opposition from time to time in the course of my ministry. I never dreamed it would come from the quarters that it's coming from now. I was shocked, but I shouldn't have been surprised. We should not be surprised. So Paul says, remember that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to be persecuted. So to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And finally, he says, remember what you have been taught. Remember, in particular, the Holy Scriptures. He says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is breathed out by God. We said that the Greek word there for, that is translated breathed out by God, if you're reading from the King James Version, uh, you might have inspired but the Greek is literally theo, God, panoustos, which means breathed, panuma, from which we get the term pneumonia, uh, a disease of the breathing apparatus of the body. So all scripture is literally breathed out by God. And because it is breathed out by God, because it is God's word, not merely the words of men about God, it is profitable. For what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that men and women may be competent, equipped for every good work. We said this is one of the unique things about the Christian faith. We believe that our God has spoken. God has not left us in the dark. We said that at the heart of Christianity is a relationship. Christianity is not so much about religion as it is about relationship, having a relationship with the living God. But the catch here is that in order for us to have a relationship with the living God, God has to speak to us. Let's be honest. We are finite creatures. He is infinite. There is no way for us to come to know Him unless He makes Himself known to us. 
And that is the unique claim of Christianity. We believe that that is exactly what God has done. God has revealed himself. How has he done that? Well, we said he's done that in a general sort of way. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. God has revealed himself in the things that have been made. Anybody that looks at the world, Paul says, should be able to recognize that there is a creator. Every child has to be trained to become an atheist, in my opinion. Because there is something hardwired within every single one of us. Lewis deals with this in the opening chapters of Mere Christianity. But there is something hardwired within us to worship. We recognize that there is a creator. And indeed, Paul says his signature is written across everything that has been made, across the created order. So God reveals himself in a general sort of way in the things that have been made. And while general revelation is wonderful, it does have its limits. Nature can reveal to us, even the deists in the 18th century believed that a God existed. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, and others, they were not what we would call orthodox Christians, but they believed in God because they said it was reasonable to do so. Look at the world. But while the general revelation is helpful, while God's revelation of himself in nature is important, it is not sufficient. Why? Because nature can tell us that a God exists, it cannot tell us what kind of a God exists. The same God who revealed that beautiful, I don't know if you saw it last night, but this magnificent sunset, just absolutely gorgeous sunset over the river last night. The same God who allows that to take place also allows hurricanes and typhoons and earthquakes and all kinds of natural disasters as well. So while nature can reveal that a God exists, it cannot tell us what kind of a God exists. To know what kind of a God exists, what he is like, that requires a different type of revelation. That requires a special or specific revelation. And that is what we have received most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Keep your finger there in 2 Timothy for just a moment and turn to John. The first chapter of John, this is sort of a little bit of a detour, but it's the first Sunday in Advent, and so this is an appropriate text for us to take a look at. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now what John is doing there is he is employing some Greek philosophical language. Uh, The term that is translated there as word is actually the Greek logos. Logos. So in the beginning was the logos, uh, and the, the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. So John is basically saying the creator God is this word, this logos. But then skip down to verse 14. And the word, the logos, did what? Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. In other words, God revealed himself, yes, in the things that have been made. He's the creator God. But that creator God then revealed himself in a more profound way, in a fuller way, 
when he took on flesh. That, the word flesh there is a wonderful word. It's the Greek sarks. It's this stuff that you can see and touch. I say it's what you and I got up with this morning. It's what some of us shaved this morning. Flesh. Flesh that is corruptible. Flesh that, that grows old. Flesh that in order to look young needs Botox and all of those other things that we try to do to it. Oil of Olay or whatever it is. Flesh, that's what Christ took on. God took on the creator of the universe, the one who cast the stars in the heavens and fashioned the earth by the power of his word, became flesh. And we beheld his glory. God revealed himself fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And that was a wonderful thing. And he walked among us. For 33 years he walked on this earth. For three years he was active in ministry and he surrounded himself with 12 men. And he ate with them because that's what flesh does. It eats. (laughs) And he slept by their side because that's what flesh needs. It needs rest. (laughs) And he died before their eyes because that's what happens to flesh. And he was raised again, incorruptible. He made himself known. And... Those men had a marvelous experience. But they recognized, they recognized that the blessing that they had was not a blessing that was going to be enjoyed by successive generations. Peter and James and John and Andrew and all the rest recognized that they had an advantage that you and I do not have. They got to see Jesus in the flesh. And we don't. So what did they do? They decided to write down their experiences in a book. And my friends, by their experiences written down in this book, as we read them, you and I are as close to being right there, walking the dusty streets of Palestine as they were. That's about as close as you and I can get without actually being there with Peter, James, and John. And so the church has always regarded the word made flesh as the supreme revelation of God, but beneath that, just beneath that, the word written as the supreme revelation of God. The English reformers, as you know, uh, railed against the medieval church for all of its relics and its saints and all of those things that they had. You know, the church has always had reliquaries. Uh, I went some years ago down to St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt which is a marvelous place to visit. It's at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they have the largest collection of early Christian manuscripts and relics outside of the Vatican. It's out in the middle of the desert. I mean, there's just absolutely nothing out there except this monastery. And I remember going through and seeing all of these things. It's called St. Catherine's. And I said, why is it called St. Catherine's? And they said, because we have a relic of St. Catherine. I said, really? I'd like to see that. Took me over there, and there was St. Catherine's finger. Well, as you know, people got attracted to that sort of thing, particularly in the medieval age, and they would go and they would, you know, say their prayers before these relics, you know, before St. Catherine's finger or St. Peter's kneecap or whatever it might possibly be. They did this sort of thing, and the reformers railed against that sort of thing because it gave rise to superstition. In fact, one of the English reformers said, if you're looking for the greatest relic on earth, the greatest relic on earth is right here. It is the Word of God. It is the Bible. 
The Holy Scriptures. This is the greatest relic on earth. And so the great battle cry of the Reformation became sola scriptura. Now we looked at this in closer detail a couple of weeks ago, and we said there are three views of the Scriptures in the church and the world today. I just want to go through these briefly. There is the classic view. And this is the view that we give lip service to every Sunday. And that is what? That the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. And it is Theopanustos. So we're going to have a reading this morning from the book of the prophet Isaiah, first Sunday in Advent. When we get to the end of that, we're going to say, not the word of Isaiah, thanks be to God. We're going to say what? It's the word of the Lord. We recognize that even though Isaiah was the writer, God the Holy Spirit so superintended the process that what was produced was not the words of Isaiah, but the word of God. And so we say the word of the Lord. So, Paul may have written this epistle to 2 Timothy, but if we have a reading in church from 2 Timothy, when we get to the end, we don't say the word of Paul, we say it's the word of the Lord. Now, that was the classic view in the church right up until the end of the 18th century and the dawn of the 19th century. The view is that the Bible is, in fact, the word of God. It is, as Paul says, theopanoustos, containing all things necessary to salvation. But in the 19th century, there was the rise of German critical thought. And this sort of skeptical approach argued that nobody can believe today in an enlightened age, of course this was a post-enlightenment culture, nobody could believe in the, after the age of the enlightenment that the Bible really was the word of God anymore. And so many of these critical scholars began to argue that no, the Bible was not really the word of God, the Bible was more the words of men about God. It has value, but its real value is historical and sociological. It gives us insight into what people have thought about the deity throughout the centuries. But it is not really a divine missive to you and to me. Now, you can see where that's going. Well, many people in the church recognized that that was problematic. But they were concerned about this critical view. They were concerned that it could put the church out of business And so what they did is they tried to adopt what I call the compromise view. And the compromise view is that the Bible contains not just the word of God and not just the words of men about God, but really the Bible contains both of those things. It contains the word of God, yes, in some areas. In other areas, it simply contains the words of men. So it's sort of a a compromise view, which sounds lovely. But then the question becomes, well... How do you tell the difference? How do do you determine which parts of the Bible, which bits are actually the word of God, and which bits are actually the words of men? How do you do it? I'll tell you how you do it. It's it's like a smorgasbord. You, You go through and you pick out those parts that are most palatable to you, those parts that taste the best to you, and those parts that you don't like, what do you do at a smorgasbord? You leave them behind. So, you know, I've told you before, when I go to a smorgasbord, the first thing I do is check out the desserts. You've heard the expression, life is short, eat dessert first. Problem with that, of course, is dessert tastes the best, but it's not the best for you, is it? Dr. Ann here anywhere today? I'm (laughs) well aware of the fact that it is not the best for you. That's what would happen with the scriptures. And so the church 
was criticized for this view, and they said, well, the best thing to do is leave it to the scholars. The scholars will tell us which parts are God's word and which parts are men's words. Do you know what you discovered? Scholars are flesh and blood like the rest of us. They're human beings. They're prejudiced like everybody else. And lo and behold, they can't agree. So you've got Bishop Tom Wright over here who argues that the resurrection was an actual event. Christ was bodily, physically raised from the dead. And if the, if the bones of the late J. Christ are ever discovered, well then, lo and behold, the whole thing becomes a sham. But over on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got people like Marcus Borg who argued that there was no resurrection to begin with. There was no physical bodily resurrection. The Bible's simply talking about a mass hallucination. The spirit of Jesus rose in the hearts of his disciples to such a degree that they were willing to go out and suffer martyrdom and crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. Isn't that lovely? What a bunch of baloney. Well, that's the problem. So I've always said, if you're looking at these three views, we as Christians have to come to terms with the fact that the only view that is really realistic and reasonable for the church is that first view. There may be many things in the Bible, my friends, that make us uncomfortable, that make us squirm a little bit. I'll be the first one to admit that. And there are other parts of the Bible, let's go ahead and admit it, that we simply don't understand. But it's like taking an aspirin. I think I told you this two weeks ago. It's like taking an aspirin. The one thing you don't do when you've got a headache is you go to the medicine cabinet, you pull out the aspirin, and you put it in your mouth, and you chew it. It's a bitter-tasting pill. It'll make you feel worse than if you had not taken it at all. What do you do? You swallow it whole. And that's the way we have to do it as Christians when it comes to the Scriptures. We have to swallow them whole, even those parts that we don't understand, even those parts that make us uncomfortable, because we recognize that it is the Word of God, and God is working in our lives through His Word to transform us evermore into the image of His Son. That's the only view that is really reasonable for us. We talked a little bit about how the Bible was formed, because somebody might argue, well, okay, this is all lovely, but how do we know? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus left, 2,000 years since he ascended to the Father. How do we know that the scriptures that we have today are accurate? And how do we know that there wasn't this great conspiracy, a la Dan Brown, <laughs> that sort of, you know, suppressed some books? We talked about the formation of the canon. You know, the Da Vinci Code has raised all kinds of questions about that. They said, oh, there were all these suppressed gospels like the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Mary, etc., what we call the Gnostic Gospels. Gnostic means Greek, gnosis, knowledge. There's this argument that the medieval church suppressed the real story, the other side of the coin. Well, we talked a little bit about the canonical standards. We said, actually, those Gnostic Gospels have been known about for centuries, long before Dan Brown ever wrote his book, The Da Vinci Code. And there was a very strict criteria that had to be met in order for any book to be included in the New Testament canon. They had to have passed the test of apostolicity. In other words, any book that was going to be included had to be connected with an apostle. It had to be connected with Peter, James, and John. Nobody could just come out and say, well, I've written a book, and I believe that it's Scripture, and it ought to be included in the New Testament. It had to be connected to an apostle, either to an apostle directly or to one of his disciples. Second test that it had to pass is that it had to date from the apostolic age. 
If you want to know why many of the Gnostic Gospels were rejected, the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Mary, is because they were written at least 200 years after the apostles had departed the scene. Two centuries after Peter and Paul and the others were dead. Hard to claim apostolicity when the apostles have been dead for two centuries. It had to pass the test of orthodoxy. In other words, whatever book appeared on the scene, it had to be in line theologically with the books that were the undisputed writings of the apostles. So if we're not really sure if Paul wrote this book, but we do know that he wrote Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians, then whatever is in this book, which claims to be Pauline, because anybody can put Paul's name on it, it has to match up with what we do know that Paul wrote in his epistle to the Ephesians. So it had to pass the test of orthodoxy. And finally, it had to pass the test of Catholicity. The word Catholic here meaning universal. In other words, a book could not enjoy only local favor or local acceptance. It had to enjoy the acceptance of the entire church. If a book, any book that was presented, failed to pass even a single one of these tests, it was rejected. And this is something important. The New Testament is the most well-attested to book of antiquity. We have more ancient copies of the New Testament and portions of the New Testament than any other ancient book. The only other book that even comes close to it is Caesar's Gallic Wars. And we only have something like 20 fragments of Caesar's Gallic Wars. We have over 20,000 fragments and copies dating back to the second century of the New Testament which tells us that if you're going to reject the New Testament simply because it was written 2,000 years ago as untrustworthy, then every ancient book that has ever been written has to be rejected as well. It's the most well-attested to book of antiquity. Which brings us to where we left off a couple weeks ago. If this is the Word of God, how do we read it? How do we read the Bible? How many of you have ever sat down and tried to read the Bible, started at the book of Genesis and tried to get your way through? Because, you know, what did Julie Andrews say? Always start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. You know, isn't that what she said? And that's what we think. Well, you have to start. So you start at Genesis and you start off, it's okay, I got this. It's familiar. Adam and Eve, I, I know all about that. And, you know, sort of work your way through. Cain kills Abel, okay. Abraham, yeah, I've heard of him. And you, you work your way through. And you do all right in Genesis. And Exodus, well, Exodus is kind of interesting. I mean, my goodness, you know, the children of Israel were in their bondage in Egypt. And you've heard about Moses. And Moses was put in the basket. And you, you know, all these stories from Sunday school. And then you get to Leviticus and, you know, Things start to get a little strange, and, and you know, and, and, and eventually you get to that section in the Old Testament they call the begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, and you get to the kings, and he did evil in, his, in, in, in the Lord's eyes, just like his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather before him, and you think to yourself, okay, don't ever start reading the Old Testament as a New Year's resolution. Because you're not going to get to the end of January before you finish. There is a right way and a wrong way to read the scriptures. And I just want to give you a couple of little hints. First of all, if you've never read the Bible the whole way through, let me suggest that you don't start with Genesis. Start with the New Testament. 
And you don't have to necessarily read in order. All right? These books were put in a particular order, but they weren't written in chronological order anyway. So understand that. In fact, the oldest documents in the New Testament are not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the epistles of Paul. Those are the earliest Christian writings, the epistles of Paul. The gospels came later. So if you're going to read the Bible and you've never done that before, start with one of the Gospels. Start with Mark or start with Matthew. And read through the Gospels. And then read through the New Testament. And then you can go back and begin to read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is informed by the New. The the disciples didn't understand the Old Testament at all. They were totally confused by the things that they'd read. They'd been raised as Jews. They'd been raised on these stories. But they didn't begin to understand what those stories really meant until they encountered Jesus Christ. When they began to read the Old Testament through the lens of the empty tomb, all of a sudden, things came alive to them. So as Christians, you have to read the Bible through the lens of the New Testament. This is particularly true when it comes to the Old. So start there. Now, here are a couple of hints you need to remember when you read the Bible. First of all, when you're reading the Bible, you have to remember its purpose. What is the purpose of the Bible? Well, first thing to remember is that its purpose is not primarily scientific. People who get hung up on these issues of how old is the earth? How did God create man? They run the risk. They run the risk of missing the forest for the trees. Because one of the things that you will discover is that the Bible was not written to teach science. Now, that doesn't mean that it does not have scientific implications. I am not suggesting that. But what I am saying to you is that it was not written primarily as a scientific textbook. For instance, it is really not interested in the questions that scientists whether they be physicists, chemists, or biologists, are necessarily interested in. It's not interested so much in mechanism as it is in agency. You understand the difference between the two? Okay. The the Bible is more concerned with who did it as opposed to how he did it. All right, that's the difference between agency and mechanism. So when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that's what it wants you to know. How did the world come about? Not by chance, not by accident. God created it. How did he do that? I don't think you and I could understand it, even if he told us. And remember, the Bible was written thousands of years ago. We get all hung up on these questions as a consequence of living in a post-Darwinian age. But we have to remember that there were lots of people who existed, thousands of generations that existed, long before Darwin ever appeared on the scene. If God had explained it in 21st century or late 20th century scientific language, how would these people living up to that period have ever understood it? So I want you to understand that while the Bible certainly has scientific implications, I mean, it certainly does, In the early part of the 20th century, many scientists believe in the steady state. That the universe was eternal. It had always existed. Exactly the same thing that the Greeks believed. 
that there had never been a moment when the universe did not exist. How many of you have ever heard of the Big Bang? Big Bang cosmology came about at the dawn of the 20th century. Up to that point, people believed that the universe was eternal, many of them. Except for who? Christians and Jews. <laughs> who argued that no, that's not true. There was a time when there was nothing and then there was something. Why? Because God said. And it's interesting to note that even a mind as great as Albert Einstein initially rejected Big Bang cosmology because he said it had religious implications. And it wouldn't be until he looked through Hubble's telescope and saw red shift, the expanding universe, that he came to the conclusion that there was a time when there was nothing and then there was something. But initially he rejected it. Why? Because it had religious implications. So that's what I mean. There's no doubt about the fact that the claims of the Bible have religious implications, but we do need to recognize that the Bible is not interested in what we would call the little questions. It's interested in the big questions. What God did, not how he did it. You can answer any kind of question in a general way or in a scientific way. For instance, if I come home and I see the tea kettle boiling on the stove and I say, why is the water boiling? Well, my wife can say, well, you know, it's so many feet above sea level, it's so many BTUs when you apply heat. That's a scientific answer, isn't it? That's not what I want to know. She says, oh, I'm making tea. Would you like some? Ah, that's why the water's boiling. See the difference between the two? The Bible is concerned with the big questions, and yet, ironically, the questions that every child asks. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Those are the concerns of the Bible. So when you read it, bear that in mind. It is not primarily a scientific document. It may have scientific implications, but it is not concerned with issues like the age of the earth. Sorry. Let us put it out there. It's not even interested in issues of evolution. That's not to say that there aren't issues there that we could discuss, but what I'm saying is the Bible is not primarily concerned with those issues. The Bible is not primarily a philosophical work. It's not to say that it doesn't have philosophy, but many of the questions that philosophers are concerned with, the Bible simply does not answer. For example, the Bible does not answer the question of suffering. It does not tell us why people suffer. Now, it gives us some insight into that, what the Bible primarily, though, is concerned with is what God is doing in the midst of suffering. If you think the Bible answers why there is suffering in the world, read the book of Job sometime. The Bible does not tell us exactly why we suffer. What it tells us is what God is doing in the midst of the suffering. That's a different kind of question. The Bible is not primary a literary work. C.S. Lewis once said that while he thought that the Apostle Paul, and of course only Lewis could say this, Brian's back there, I see him, um, only C.S. Lewis could say this and get away with it, he said, it seems to me that the Apostle Paul was a rather good theologian, but a rather bad writer. <laughs> if you read through portions of the Bible, the grammar, the sentence structure, some of it is bad. Now, parts of it are just absolutely glorious. 
And of course, we all tend to think that God is English and speaks with an English accent anyway. And of course, the real Bible is the King James Version of the Bible and so forth. Every Christmas Eve, no matter what church I've ever been in, we'll assign readings and somebody will come up and say, can I read that from the King James? Because after all, that's the language it was originally written in. <laughs> the Bible is not primary, primarily a literary work, although it contains great works of literature. But it is not primary a literary work. What is the Bible? It is primarily a book about salvation. That's how you need to read the Bible. It is a book that was written to bring you into a personal relationship with the Lord of glory. Now, as I said, all of these other things are contained to some degree, but they are not the primary focus of the Bible. The primary focus of the Bible is to bring you and me into fellowship with Jesus Christ and to instruct us in the way that we should go, that we may bear witness to him and bring him glory. John Wesley put it so well. He said, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. And for this very end he came from heaven, and he hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri. Let me be a man of one book. Let us as Christians be men and women of one book. <laughs> Let's recognize what this book is. It is the greatest relic ever bequeathed to us. It is God speaking through us. And if we read it, if we mark it, if we learn it, if we inwardly digest it, we will encounter the risen Jesus Christ and we will be transformed, whoever you are, evermore into his likeness. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, whatever you do, remember the holy scriptures that have been written for your learning. Now, just as an aside, and there was more that I had to do. As I said, I thought we'd get through to chapter 4. That's not going to happen. But I just want to say something about this because Again, there's a lot of debate about what's going on and what our current conflict with the National Episcopal Church is. This is what the current conflict is all about. Make no mistake. This is what the, the crisis in all of the mainline Protestant denominations that are on the decline. And it's not just the Episcopal Church. The Presbyterian Church, USA, is doing the same thing. The Methodists are struggling with the same thing. The Lutherans are struggling with the same thing. And it is not, and I'm going to repeat this, it is not about human sexuality, except in a secondary sense. What this is really about is whether or not the Bible is the Word of God containing all things necessary to salvation. And we here at St. Philip's believe that it is. That doesn't mean we have an infantile approach to it. We recognize that there were many writers, but we recognize there's one author. 
And we recognize that there is one theme from the book of Genesis the whole way through to the end of the book of Revelation, and that is the theme of Jesus Christ. And we believe that those who read this book come to know him, and in coming to know him, come to know life everlasting. And that is a belief, and that is a book worth fighting for. And the Reformers believed it was a book worth dying for. So let's close with a word of prayer and go off to church where we can meet this Lord Jesus again. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you've not left us in the dark, that you've made yourself known in the things that have been made, that you've made yourself known supremely in the word made flesh, your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you've given us a book, the word written, that by reading it we may come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. God grant that like Wesley, we may be men and women of one book. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.